Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, it's Jeremy. I know it's a Saturday. You're like, what am I doing here? Well, if you've been listening to the show recently, you've probably heard me talking about a new Politico podcast called Global Translations. If you haven't, you're in for a treat. Global Translations explores the giant problems facing the world right now that defy political boundaries and gives listeners a new way to think about problems they thought they understood. And today here on Dispatch, we're giving you the full first episode. If you like what you hear, subscribe. Just search for Global Translations in your favorite podcast app. All right, here's the show. Enjoy. What happens to supply chains when trade disputes and a global pandemic collide? On a special episode of Global Translations, presented by City, we learn how businesses are prioritizing resilience over efficiency to adapt supply chain networks in the face of disruption. Tune in November 11th, wherever you listen to this podcast. You know, the tug of war, right? Where you have people pulling on a rope on one side and then, you know, they're competing against another set of people pulling the same rope on the other side. Let's focus on one side of the rope. So you have about five people on one side pulling a rope. They're pulling just one single rope, right? Think of that as a supply chain. Everything pulls together. If you have the biggest guy or or the strongest guy in that tug of war, and that strongest guy unfortunately drops dead or collapses, what happens? <laughs> the entire the entire talk collapses, they lose, right? That's exactly the way the supply chain works. If you have a weak link in that chain, that weak link actually determines the overall strength of that supply chain. So everyone is dependent on the other in the supply chain in order to make the flow of goods and services to be seamless. That's Professor Adigoke Oke, and I'm Louisa Savage. Honestly, what a stupid game Tug of War is. <laughs> Every time I played it when I was a kid, it was just about depending on the other people. Your brain was not part of the equation. And this is Ryan Heath. And everyone just ended up dirty anyway. Who writes the Global Translations newsletter and is one of my favorite Politico colleagues. I just don't understand the point of it. Okay, that tells me a lot about you, Ryan. (laughs) From Politico, this is Global Translations, a podcast that translates huge global forces that you might not normally think about, but that impact the world economy in massive and small ways. Like, for example, whether or not I can get a freezer, and more on that later, or whether we can vaccinate the world against COVID. At the center of both of those questions are supply chains. And over the next few episodes, we're looking at some of the big challenges facing the world. The future of scarce natural resources. The green energy transition. The post-COVID jobs crisis. And how the coronavirus pandemic exposed weaknesses in our global systems. So many of these questions come down to supply chains. Those tangled webs of resources, of people, facilities, transportation, manufacturing, everything that it takes to create the goods that we need. We're in a really unique moment right now since the pandemic. Things are shifting. And we're looking at what got us to this moment. 
a moment in which countries around the world are not only rethinking the extent of their dependence on each other, but they're making fundamental changes. Because as the pandemic has shown, there's a lot to fix. First up, how the coronavirus upended supply chains. And what I want everyone to be thinking about when they think about supply chains is not things, but about people and places. Yeah, exactly. To me, supply chains are the actual tangible, touchable plot of globalization. It's like you can just trace it on a map, place to place, port to port. But if we step back for a second, we have to ask ourselves, are those the shapes that even work for us? Right, because globalization is this abstract concept, but supply chains are real and concrete. Like how my kids get their sneakers or how I buy a smartphone. And they involve factories, they involve ships, cargo, trucks, Mm -hmm. buyers and intermediaries, and then the retail stores. They are essentially globalization made real. And COVID taught us not only how global our supply chains are, from the simplest to the most complicated products, but also how fragile they are. And the United States realized even more how dependent it was on China. Right, because we knew that a lot of things were made in China. We knew tons of things were made in China. But what was so eye-opening about COVID was this realization of just how much personal protective equipment, PPE, was made in China. Yeah, things that mattered were made in China. China made about half of the world's face masks. So when COVID hit, we suddenly realized just how much we really, really relied on China. And that's why I called Professor O.K. Hello. Hello. Hello there. He's a professor of supply chain management at Arizona State University's School of Business. Okay. And he's got an interesting analogy for supply chains. He thinks it's a tug of war. Each of those guys in the tug of war will be referred to as the node. Each point in the supply chain is a node. Okay. And the rope that connects them together, you can refer to the rope as a link. Now, the big guy is China, and unfortunately, it's a big guy because it's a critical node. China is the big guy at the end of the rope holding things down because China is the world's manufacturing superpower, supplying 28% of global manufacturing output. Well, how did they become the big guy? Number one, everybody made them the big guy. That's one. Because we were looking for low-cost solutions to everything, to production. Okay, and here's China. 20, 25 years ago, the labor cost was so low. But not only that, because, of course, some people will argue, but in Africa, the labor cost is also low. So why China? Well, in addition to having low labor cost, the Chinese had a policy to develop their manufacturing, to improve the manufacturing, to be the factory of the world, if you like. When COVID hit initially, there was this moment when people couldn't get stuff. This morning, major grocery stores working overtime. Stop into almost any store around here. There is no toilet paper. They are out of face masks. People are scrambling to stock up on supplies, prompting some stores to start rationing how much you can buy. I have two teenage boys. Well, one's a preteen and one's a teen. And all I wanted when the lockdown came in was to buy a freezer for all this food that they eat all day long. And I went online and I looked at the big retailers and nowhere could you get a freezer. There were months long delays on every website. Even if you clicked on buy and it looked like it was going to come, you'd later get a notice saying that it was sold out. It was on hold. It was coming later. They didn't know when it was coming. 
So, Professor Oke, what caused that delay? Did the factory shut down or did the ship not leave the dock or what exactly was the problem? All of the above. That's why the COVID-19 is so unique. And unfortunately, your Costco or whoever is supplying your freezer couldn't source from elsewhere, you know, other than their main source, because all the other sources too are affected by COVID-19. We have a supply chain department in, in my university, and a lot of universities have supply chain departments now. We teach our students basically to optimize supply chains, okay? To drive cost efficiency in supply chains. That's everything we teach. It, you know, everything boils down to how can we optimize supply chain? How can we drive cost out of supply chains? And over the years, Global companies, a lot of companies have perfected this act. They know how to do this. But guess what? While it is good, it's good teaching, it's good practice, it has also made supply chains to be highly vulnerable. Highly vulnerable. For example, one of the key teachings of the last two decades or three decades has been the just-in-time philosophy. Just-in-time philosophy is you provide something exactly when the customers need them. Mm -hmm. This is the reason why when you go to your grocery store, they've done the supply chain and their stock inventory management in such a way that they don't have too much of one thing. Right. They'll probably have enough for one week. That's why sometimes customers go there, they don't find enough of what they want. It is because they've tried to make the supply chain efficient. So why do they do that? Because keeping inventories costs money. Now you need warehouses for more things. You need electricity, you need to pay energy, you actually need to pay some people to look after those inventories. So essentially we found that keeping inventories, and permit me for using this word, being fat, you know, (laughs) is not good for supply chains. So over the years, we've become what I say lean. You know, we've driven every fat out of the supply chain to become lean because we want to be nimble. Mm -hmm. Now, that has so many good things to it. But when you have a disruption like we have had with COVID, Mm -hmm. we see that being lean might not be so good after all. Being lean might not be so good after all. Until COVID, most people took supply chains for granted because when they're working, you're not thinking about them. It's kind of like when a building topples in an earthquake or a levee fails in a hurricane. Suddenly you run to look at the building code to see, why did we build this so poorly? Where did we go wrong? How do we get supply chain resiliency in the, in the manufacturing Absolutely. of our antibiotics and drugs? And the buzzword was supply chain Resilience. Looking at our supply chains and strengthening their resiliency. And supply chain resilience. Supply chain resilience because much of our healthcare products come from overseas. We will increase American manufacturing and supply chain resilience. Because what happened to a lot of companies is they don't have inventories because we've taught them not to have inventories. And because they, they also think they shouldn't be keeping inventories. You know, why would you keep inventories? What if customers don't buy them? Then you have to get rid of them, you lose money. Or what if they expire? Then you lose money, so you keep just enough. Then COVID happens. So efficiency, which sounds like a good thing, 
is actually one of the reasons our supply chains were so vulnerable to disruption. The way we construct our supply chains tells us what we value as a society. Do we value dependability and reliability? Do we value it enough to accept that supplies might be slower and more expensive? Does a low price matter enough to give away local middle-class jobs? Those are all really important questions. And it becomes an emergency when something like the pandemic hits. Because you don't have time to think about it as a seminar. You don't have time to debate it in an election campaign. Right. You need the masks tomorrow, today, yesterday. And if the supply chain doesn't work because of all of those problems, well, you've got a much more immediate and a much bigger problem as a society. Can we go back for a second to my freezer? By the way, it's interesting you, you, you came back to the freezer example. Maybe because I'm a supply chain management professor, I have this argument with my wife all the time. <laughs> she always wanted an extra freezer. And because I've been trained to be lean and to be efficient and to focus on cost, I always rejected it. So whenever we went to Costco, she wanted to buy more than enough. I said, no, we just buy what we need for one week. Because you're a just-in-time kind of man. <laughs> Eggs, I'm a just-in-time kind of guy. But then COVID happened. And then we didn't have tissue paper, we didn't have this, we didn't have that. And then she looked at me and said, you see now, we don't have all these things in the house. Okay. <laughs> so it's just a classic, simple example of supply chain and operations and inventory management. There are two reasons I couldn't get a freezer during COVID. One is that because of just-in-time supply chains, the places selling freezers didn't have huge numbers of freezers sitting around waiting for people to buy them. They would put in my order, someone would fill it, say in China, for example, and put it on a ship, and then it would come to me. And the second reason is that in searching for the lowest price of freezers, companies sourced to China because it was the cheapest. And then when the Chinese factory shut down because people got sick, those shipments stopped. And so those two things together, not having a domestic stockpile or a backup, and then relying too much on one country, and really the same country everybody else was relying on, are the two reasons I, I couldn't get my freezer. So I called a guy who knew why we were getting everything from one country. Uh, next we have Tom... I called Tom Dusterberg, Dusterberg, who testified in Congress about the impact of coronavirus on supply chains. Thank you for this opportunity to speak about the crucial issue of the resilience of our supply chains at a time of pandemic economic crisis. That just-in-time approach was embraced in the 1990s and 2000s, just as China was opening up to foreign investment. It was being welcomed into the World Trade Organization. And their labor costs were very, very low right at the moment when businesses around the world were chasing the lowest price. Chasing the lowest price, the China price it was called in the 1990s. Everybody had to get the, the China price. And so going along with that was what's called just-in-time supply chains. You, you don't want to you know, have huge stockpiles on site. And so companies went away from that. They would ship stuff in and, you know, the air, air logistics, land logistics improved so much that they were able to do that. But even before COVID, we began to see that these super lean, super efficient global systems had a weakness. Over time, especially into the 90s and the current millennium, we began to see that there were interruptions in, in those just-in-time systems. I mean, we had floods, we had tsunamis. 
The Japanese earthquake and tsunami's effect on supply chains. And the supply chains broke down after that devastating impact of that tsunami uh, in particular, and we see this massive uh, contraction in industrial production. There was a famous case where the auto industry, more specifically the tire industry, was shut down because there was only a single source, which was in Southeast Asia, for something called carbon black. And they had floods there. A natural disaster is leading to a parts shortage, flooding such as this flood. That's just one example. You know, the Japanese uh, tsunami cut off auto parts supplies shortages stemming from that massive March earthquake and tsunami in Japan. During the COVID, uh, floods in China interrupted the supply chains for uh, personal protective equipment that we still had to get from China. And again, these interruptions with just-in-time supply chains, they were already happening. These global supply chains were being put to the test, and they weren't looking so good. What the COVID did was sort of focus people like a laser on this. Yeah, exactly. At one point in time, 70% of the ports of entry around the world for shipping were affected by COVID. You couldn't put get stuff on a ship and get it going to where it needed to go. Almost every country in the world cut off both transportation and the movement of people at one time or another. Most countries... At one point during the height of the, of the crisis, cut off supplies of critical materials, uh, medicines, personal protective equipment, and the like. And so the combination of sort of the accumulated knowledge that just-in-time systems weren't really going to work and the increasing visibility, if you will, of these cutoffs in the supply, extended just-in-time supply chains really came home to roost. And at the same time, the purely economic impact of COVID, where we had, what, 40 million people out of work in the United States, we had factories shut down, the European auto industry was shut down. Uh, everybody realized that if we were going to address the employment problems that we have in each of our countries, wherever you are, mm -hmm. and you were reliant on external forces, including some political forces, then that constellation of forces, I, I think, has really focused people's minds on the need to, to the extent possible, to bring production back home, to create more resilience, the term that's widely used, but bring as much back home as we can to avoid those sorts of devastating interruptions in production and access to critical materials. We'll be right back. Successful supply chains have long been defined by profitability and speed, but ongoing trade disputes and COVID-19 are exposing gaping cracks in our global supply chains, forcing many leaders to rethink how they structure their networks. Now, businesses are making big moves, prioritizing resilience over efficiency. I'm Heather Clancy. Stay tuned for a special branded episode of Global Translations, presented by Citi. We'll look at the transformations brought on by trade impediments, consumer behavior, and digital technologies that make us and our economies more resilient when disruptions like geopolitical conflict and pandemic strike. Tune in November 11th, wherever you listen to this podcast. We're back. So if the story of the 1990s and the 2000s was the forward march of globalization, 
In the wake of the COVID crisis, we started to hear people saying that hasn't worked, that maybe we need to move in the opposite direction, a sort of deglobalization. I'm working on a bill to bring back onto our shores the manufacturing. Bringing production back home. Looking at our supply chains and strengthening their resiliency. COVID is spreading around the world and hospitals everywhere need personal protective equipment all at once. So demand skyrockets at the same time that there's a disruption in the supply chain. So we don't have enough stockpiled and we can't get enough quickly enough. Well, this is a really important point that you make, Senator. And we start hearing more from lawmakers. Many Americans are newly conscious of how we are over-dependent on China and on other countries for manufacturing things essential to our health and safety. President Trump. We're taking our business out of China. We are bringing it home. We want our business to come home. Not just about producing more in the United States, but also about decoupling the U.S. from China. So when you mention the word decouple, it's, uh, it's an interesting word. But is it really possible to unwind decades of globalization that have been driven by fundamental economic forces like price, like efficiency, you mentioned Japan putting forward $2 billion to help subsidize companies to come back. That's that's just $2 billion. It sounds like a lot. But in the vast scheme of trade, I mean, that's nothing. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not that much. And the answer is no, you can't unwind this in any foreseeable point in time. What What I think we have to do is select the sectors, the products that are really, really vital and focus first on doing what we can to bring that production back home. Here's a problem with decoupling, though, Ryan. U.S. business isn't exactly rushing to do it. Nope, they're not. The American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai recently found that fewer than 4% of their members were planning to relocate production capacity back to the U.S., and that's despite President Trump's trade war and high tariffs. And that is a fundamental hurdle to changing supply chains. And this discussion isn't only happening in the US. Politicians are talking about this around the world, but they're not in sync with each other. They're not in sync with the companies. You know, if you take the European Union, for example, I was working there as a reporter for five years, and I also worked inside the EU system for another six years. And their entire system is based on the opposite of decoupling. They're all about sharing sovereignty. So they honestly could care less about saying the production or the headquarters of a company is on their territory. They're much more interested in having a diversity of supply chains. Yeah, that's true. And they call that strategic autonomy. Then if you flip it down to the other side of the world, to Australia, where I grew up, well, Australia, they just depend far too much on China as an export market. They don't have the choice to cut China off because if they did, their living standards would fall off a cliff. So what they've decided to do instead is put stricter limits on what types of foreign direct investment they'll allow. Basically, they've turned around and said, we don't want to end the relationship, but we want more control in our China relationship. Right. And that brings us back full circle to the US-China tug of war. And in my mind, actually, the most interesting question is, what does Beijing think about all this? Yes, we're recording. And so I asked David Wertheim. I first encountered China as a Peace Corps volunteer in the summer of 2001. David is the author of Politico's incredibly popular China Watcher newsletter and our editorial director for China. 
we pine for this sort of halcyon day, uh, or some do, when you know we had a tension-free U.S.-China relationship. Well, such a thing has has never existed, certainly in my lifetime. Right. But when I think about supply chains, they're really, they're the nervous system of globalization, right? I, I think we know that made in China became a bigger and bigger piece of global commerce over the years. But can you talk a little bit about how those supply chains were shaped and China's own role in shaping them? Absolutely. There's a lot to unpack here, but I think a few things are worth noting. I mean, First of all, as you mentioned, Louisa, China has been the single largest driver of global economic growth in this century. Mm -hmm. It's not really even close. It has become a market that, you know, multinational corporations do not feel that they can ignore. And it's become so tightly integrated with the global economic system, that I think it's a little bit impossible to imagine a full decoupling, right? And, and that word decoupling is somewhat problematic because it's inherently binary. You're either coupled or you're not. The truth is that we're going to remain more coupled than not. And there's not much that any one presidential administration um, can do to change it. So you mentioned the word decoupling, and we've been hearing that more and more often in political debates. That suggests this is a marriage. Is this a bad marriage? So we've used various metaphors to describe the U.S.-China relationship. And I, I like the one I like to use is that foreign policy is like high school with nuclear weapons. <laughs> There's fewer than 200 people in this observable universe, and they all have to live with one another. I mean, look, fundamentally, we live on a pretty tiny little jewel of a planet floating in a very large black space. And the US and China are the two great powers, the two big economies. China is the world's most populous nation. You don't really get to choose who's on that planet with you. Take me back to this high school. I'm really interested in this high school. I'm interested in the <laughs> lunch table. So who is China in, in this cafeteria and who is the United States? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Louisa, you're forcing me to reach to sort of bad high school tropes. Various, various movies I've seen over the years or, God forbid, my own, thinking back to my own high school experience. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that you know, the U.S. wants to push China away from the, you know, the cool kids table. And it's actually in the last year or so seemingly had a lot of help from China itself, which has really strained its own relations with a number of countries in Europe, among others with Korea. I could go on. I think China's wolf warrior approach to diplomacy does once again invoke some of those thoughts about how you might comport yourself in high school. But when it comes to this question of decoupling, I just don't think that the numbers right. bear it out. So, um, you know, there's been some good studies. Macro Polo, a think tank, looked at apple suppliers by region and it compared 2017 to 2019 when, you know, U.S.-China trade tensions were at an all-time, not an all-time high, but very high. And China's share grew over that interim. You know, the U.S.-China Business Council released a survey recently of, you know, multinationals operating in China. They've grown a little bit dimmer in their view of China, but fundamentally, they're invested and they're not 
most of them aren't planning to drastically scale back their operations. If you look at headlines around, you know, the supply chain shift question, you know, it's it's easy to get caught up in the political moment, but these are, you know, businesses have to make very capital intensive long-term plans and it's very hard to turn that frigate on a dime. And a lot of what you're seeing about supply chain shifts and reshoring, if you read those headlines, you've usually got some kind of subjunctive verb in there somewhere mm-hmm. or some caveat. Mm-hmm. Right. A country is hoping that something happens or planning on trying to attract businesses back. But that doesn't mean that it's actually happening. And the other thing worth keeping in mind, of course, is that there's a broader shift underway, which is the center of gravity, whether that's the number of people, whether that's military power, financial power, political power, wealth, is shifting east. It's shifting from the West as we conceive it to Asia as we conceive it. And China's a huge part of that story, but it's going to happen regardless. And it may be a question of you know, locating certain parts of supply chain, certain nodes on that chain in Vietnam or India instead of China. But that doesn't mean that companies are going to wake up tomorrow and bring that work back to the United States. So we've here in the United States talked a lot about reshoring and and made in America Mm -hmm. and bringing back supply chains. We don't hear as much about the conversation inside China about made in China supply chains. And increasingly, we're seeing the U.S. government um, banning U.S. companies from selling certain technologies to certain Chinese tech companies. How are Mm -hmm. the Chinese uh, authorities and planners responding to that? The conversation in China, particularly in Chinese policymaking circles, is around self-reliance. The fact that as a increasingly technologically advanced power, China either is or should be capable of making its own stuff and inventing its own stuff. You know, made in China 2025 obviously was a thing that's sort of variously been renamed now because the policies, when publicly released, freaked out American counterparts so much. But the fundamental spirit of Made in China 2025 is that there's no reason why we can't nurture national champions at home so that we are not reliant on foreign enterprise. And simultaneous with this, which this is somewhat an aspiration, but simultaneous with this is the reality that China has become a much more domestic consumption-focused economy. So there's this notion we have that was true in the early aughts when I first went to China that has unfortunately carried over into 2020, where we believe that if we were to sort of cut China off, um, they'd be in a world of trouble. It's certainly true that we can hurt individual firms like Huawei. It's far less clear that we can cut China off from us or the world and cause fatal damage. And there's this sense, I think, again, this is a carryover from the early aughts, but also from the last century, that we in the United States have a veto over what China does or chooses to do. And while that might be nice, given many of the choices that the Communist Party has made, the evidence that we have a veto is just not there. So what you're saying is we have less and less leverage, less and less power to dictate the terms of this relationship. We have far less power to dictate the terms of the relationship now than we did 
for example, 20 years ago when I started going to China. We still have a lot of power. We're the world's most powerful military and largest economy. But we have, we have significantly less power than we used to. And I think there's some regret in the policymaking community, um, and I'm, I'm psychoanalyzing them a bit. I think there's some regret in the policymaking community that we didn't recognize some of the threats earlier and act on them earlier, and now there's an attempt to make up for lost time. You mentioned Made in China 2025, which was a whole strategic plan that Beijing came out with in 2015. And now China is coming out with a new five-year plan just later this month, right? Is this going to be President Xi's way of trying to diminish China's dependence on the United States, a relationship that has become really volatile and unpredictable? Chinese officials are meeting later this month in what's called a plenary meeting or a plenum to hammer out China's next five-year plan. So one is that Made in China 2025 is still an ambition of the People's Republic, even though they don't talk about it using that buzzword very much anymore, because when they did, it freaked out American officials and observers. But bringing more high-end manufacturing into China and therefore making high-tech supply chains less reliant on foreign counterparties, particularly the United States, is going to be a focus. But more broadly, there's expected to be a focus in this next five-year plan on something called dual circulation, which effectively means that China wants to be more self-reliant. It wants to use the power of its large and growing domestic market, its huge population, its huge middle class, to have that market be the destination for many of the goods that it produces internally. Uh, so become less of an export-driven economy and one where that sort of internal circulation is happening. They're making stuff inside of China and then they're being sold within China. And the dual circulation, which is a sort of um, inelegant term, inelegant formulation, refers to the fact that they will also continue to export. So that's the second circulation. But this is all a fancy kind of bureaucratic way of saying that China does plan to become more economically self-reliant, more inward-looking. And part of that does involve having high-tech manufacturing happening at home so that it is less vulnerable. So David, I think we're in this kind of important moment in global relationships right now, right? With all this talk about the US and China potentially decoupling. President Trump has been talking about this. Other lawmakers are talking about this. Right. And it's one of those buzzwords that doesn't hasn't really been defined. So let's look at two alternate definitions. If decoupling means that American and Chinese societies their internets, their talent pools, their supply chains are going to drift apart further than they are now, absolutely this process will continue. So if you look at decoupling as a spectrum, we're moving in that direction. However, if you define decoupling as a true and complete severing of the countries, of the two economies, of the two societies, the prospects for that are zero. That will not happen any time in your or my or our listeners' lives. It's virtually impossible given how intertwined the two economies are. 
Most recent numbers show the United States buying $40 billion worth of stuff from China. That's from August 2020. That's at the height of U.S.-China trade war. That's at the height of our battle with COVID. This is still happening. So the prospects for a full decoupling are essentially zero. But in terms of a directional arrow, yes, that's already underway. The superpowers are trending away from each other. They are right now, yes. That is not necessarily a prediction of the future, though. Ultimately, what so many of the questions we've asked boil down to is whether the systems we have in place, the institutions, the incentives, are up to the challenge of this moment. And if the current shape of globalization just isn't working for us, then what is the right shape? When I think about the challenges in a global supply chain, the number one concern today is the supply chain for a vaccine. It's not just about finding which vaccines work, it's about preparing the manufacturing and supply chains for those. And if one little detail in those supply chains goes wrong, we might not be getting vaccines to people when they desperately need them. So once there's a working vaccine, we still need to manufacture and distribute it to billions of people all at once. But how? Find out next time on Global Translations. Our producers are Annie Reese and Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Jenny Arment, and Irene Noguchi is the executive producer. I'm Louisa Savage. And I'm Ryan Heath. Thanks to Professor Adigoke Oke, Tom Dusterberg, and our colleague David Wertheim. Global Translations is presented by Citi, a leading global bank. And remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and listen for a branded episode from Citi coming November 11. Thanks for listening. And see you next week.